The other day, my daughter said to me, Mom, if I give birth to a damaged child, I'm still going to love him. Can you imagine that? She's in 10th grade and she already has such thoughts. Her friends too, they think about it all the time. Some acquaintances of ours recently gave birth to a son, their first. They're a young, handsome pair and their boy has a mouth that stretches to his ears and he has no ears. I don't like to visit them like I used to, but my daughter doesn't mind. She looks in on them all the time. She wants to go there, maybe just to see, or maybe to try it on. We could have left, but my husband and I thought about it and decided not to. We're afraid to. Here, we're all Chernobylites. We're not afraid of one another, and if someone gives you an apple or a cucumber from their garden, you take it and eat it. You don't hide it shamefully in your pocket, your purse, and then throw it out. We all share the same memories. We have the same fate. Anywhere else, we're foreign. We're lepers. Everyone is used to the words Chernobylites, Chernobyl children, Chernobyl refugees. But you don't know anything about us. You're afraid of us. You probably wouldn't let us out of here if you had your own way. You'd put up a police cordon. That would calm you down. Don't try to tell me it's not like that. I lived through it. In those first days, I took my daughter and ran off to Minsk to my sister. My own sister didn't let us into her home. She had a little baby she was breastfeeding. Can you imagine that? We slept at the train station. I had crazy thoughts. Where should we go? Maybe we should kill ourselves so as not to suffer. That was just in the first days. Everyone started imagining horrible diseases, unimaginable diseases, and I'm a doctor. I can only guess at what other people were thinking. Now I look at my kids. Wherever they go, they'll feel like strangers. My daughter spent a summer at Pioneer Camp. The other kids were afraid to touch her. She's a Chernobyl rabbit. She glows in the dark. They made her go into the yard at night so they could see if she was glowing. People talk about the war. The war generation, they compare us to them. But those people were happy. They won the war. It gave them a very strong life energy, as we say nowadays. It gave them a really strong motivation to survive and keep going. They weren't afraid of anything. They wanted to live, learn, have kids. Whereas us, we're afraid of everything. We're afraid for our children and for our grandchildren who don't exist they don't exist and we're already afraid. People smile less. They sing less at holidays. The landscape changes because instead of fields, the forest rises up again. But the national character changes too. Everyone's depressed. It's a feeling of doom. Chernobyl is a metaphor, a symbol. 
And it's changed our everyday life and our thinking. On April 26, 1986, at 1.23 a.m., a series of explosions destroyed the reactor in the building that housed energy block number four of the Chernobyl nuclear power station in Pripyat, Ukraine, former Soviet Union. The ensuing fire in the graphite reactor core, it released large amounts of radioactive material into the atmosphere where it was carried great distances by air currents. Just three days later, on April 29th, 1986, high levels of radiation were recorded in Poland, Germany, Austria, and Romania. On April 30th, in Switzerland and northern Italy. On May 1st and 2nd, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and northern Greece. On May 3rd, in Israel, Kuwait, and Turkey. Gaseous airborne particles traveled around the globe. On May 2nd, they were registered in Japan. And on May 5th and 6th, in India, the U.S., and Canada. It took less than a week for Chernobyl to become a problem for the entire world. 32 people died initially, and dozens more suffered radiation burns in the opening days of the crisis. But as a result of the perpetual presence of radiation, the number of people with cancer and mental disabilities and neurological disorders and genetic mutations, it increases with each year. The catastrophe at Chernobyl became the largest technological disaster of the 20th century. Sounds a lot like hell on earth. Sounds a lot like hell on earth, but it's not. But it's the world that we live in. The disaster at Chernobyl and the radioactive fallout, it reminds me of a story. A story of where perfect harmony in a perfectly lush and perfectly sustainable garden of perfect provision was destroyed. The humans chose disobedience and selfishness instead of perfect union with the perfect definition of heaven on earth. And by choosing disobedience and by choosing selfishness, they didn't choose perfect union with the perfect definition of heaven on earth. They didn't choose God. They didn't choose life. They chose death. And the catastrophic consequences of their choosing created a fallout far more ruinous than radioactivity. The fallout of sin in a world far from heaven on earth. But a world that God was unwilling to abandon. A world that God was unwilling to abandon like the pillaged and peeling radiation-ravaged town of Pripat. Today we continue our Heaven on Earth sermon series a series where we're exploring what, what Christmas is all about. 
the reunion of earth and heaven. And last week, Jeff talked about this, this split that happened between heaven and earth. There's this perfect harmony in the garden, and then disaster comes, the first sin comes, and then it's separated, it's torn apart. And today we press on forward toward that glorious day when they will be united at last. And over the course of this sermon series, Jeff came up with the idea of doing a journey photo challenge where we're encouraging people to post photos on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter of those moments, you know, those glimpses that just seem like heaven on earth. I think a couple people posted, like some, someone posted about like a dog, someone posted some mountains, someone even posted about uh, my kid which was awesome, you know, but, but, you know, by definition, a dog or some mountains or baby Zeke, they aren't by definition heaven, but they might be what, like, what heaven is like or as in our understanding. You see, we're using simile, using a comparison with the words like or as to draw a comparison as to what we believe heaven to be like. And so how do we do this? You know, heaven might be a lot of different things that we could post about, but let us not forget that first and foremost, heaven is ultimately Jesus. Ultimately, by definition, Jesus. So how do I do this whole like hashtag thing? Uh, A hashtag for you oldies but goodies is a pound sign. A pound sign, journey photo challenge. So, so you write that in, in the hashtag, and then you write a caption, something like, to me, heaven on earth is like, but for me, I don't want to use simile. I don't want to use, well, heaven on earth is like. I just want to say what heaven on earth is, and that would be Jesus. But I'm having a hard time. Maybe you can help me. I, I'm just not sure which Jesus I should post. Do I post Swedish Jesus? NASCAR Jesus, prehistoric raptor Jesus, or even hipster Jesus. That might be, you know. Uh, Or uh, Star Wars Jesus, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or just Superman Jesus. Well, before I get into any more trouble or offend anyone else, would you stand with me if you're able to stand as we read from our memory verse today? Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. And I want to do something a little bit different today. I want us to read these words together as one church. One church who actually believes these words, who actually desires more than anything in the world that these words would come to fruition in our lives right now. So let's read these words aloud like we truly mean it. Matthew 6:10. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, we're talking about when heaven came back. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came into our world, that there was disunion and a split that occurred in perfect harmony in the garden, but you weren't willing to allow us to wallow in the darkness. Lord, you've called us to yourself, and you did so by becoming like us. Born as a baby, not in a palace of gold, but in a Bethlehem slum. You humbled yourself to live a life 
of pure servitude. And then you died on a cross for us, for the sins of the world once and for all. But Jesus, you rose from the grave and we are so grateful for that because it means for us hope and the promise that you are coming back to restore all things. We praise you and we want to honor and worship you today with our lives, with our attention today. Help us not to be distracted by the the things going on in the room or in our world or the things that we have going on after today. We want to hear from you today. So we praise you and we lift you high. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We started out in a lush garden, a lush garden with towering trees. But now we live in a world that is disorderly and dysfunctional. There's garbage heaped in the corners and in the alleyways. Violence is rampant. And sin has radiated its way into the very fabric of our DNA. We're tempted to sing, this world is not my home. But indeed, it is. And we need someone to set things right. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet speaks during the 8th century BC of an ideal king who establishes a kingdom of peace. Isaiah speaks the words of God in an age where the terrible Assyrian and Babylonian empires were chopping the people of God, the Israelites, down like trees. The people of Isaiah's day must have thought, we need someone to set things right. We need this ideal king who establishes a kingdom of peace. And in the hearing of Isaiah's words, the people of Isaiah's day must have thought, hey, maybe this is that one who has come to make things right. Hey, maybe it's the up-and-coming King Hezekiah. Or maybe it's the up-and-coming King Josiah. Maybe one of them is the ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace. But even after the glorious reigns and sweeping reforms of King Hezekiah and King Josiah, something still feels left undone. Something still feels unfulfilled. Because after all, as glorious as their reigns were and as sweeping as their reforms proved to be, the kings who came after them chopped it all down like a tree. So maybe this ideal king who establishes a kingdom of peace is still yet to come. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, Out of the stump, that is out of what has just been chopped down, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Now, I'm no arborist or botanist or dendrologist, but this doesn't make much sense to me. Out of the stump will grow a shoot. Out of the stump will grow a shoot, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Uh Uh-huh. 
Yeah, bippity-boppity-boo. And just like that, a pumpkin transforms into a carriage and four brown mice into four beautiful white horses. Well, I read in Better Homes and Gardens. I've never read Better Homes and Gardens, but maybe you have. I read that it takes an especially tenacious tree to sprout from a stump. But... It definitely takes bippity-boppity-boo for a new branch bearing fruit to grow out of the old root. Because once a tree has been cut down, the roots can no longer grow. Because the roots, in order to grow and for this tree to grow, they need leaves. And without leaves, you can have no, no food to fuel the roots, and roots are essential. The health of the roots is essential for bearing fruit. So on a biological level, it takes a miraculous movement of God to accomplish this growth from a stump or this fruit-bearing branch from old roots phenomenon, and rightly so, because the story of when heaven came back is all about a miraculous movement of God. But Isaiah is not talking about the science of tree growth or reforestation. He's talking about a family tree, the family tree of King David, which if you've ever read the story, looks awfully rotten, desiccated, dried up, and dead-like. But this shoot, this branch, is sprouting to make all things new. This shoot, this branch that's sprouting to make all things new, this ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace. And I know it's in the Old Testament, and I know it's in the 8th century BC, but this shoot, this branch, this ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. We're talking about Jesus who is wise and without equal. We're talking about Jesus who is hope to the hopeless, altruistic and accessible, trustworthy and true, almighty and absolute, sinless and strong, active and alive, victorious and born of a virgin, irreplaceable and incorruptible, omnipotent and omniscient righteously ruling restorer who rose from the grave. And the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before, has much more to say of Jesus and the hoping and the longing and the yearning for when heaven would come back and set things right. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now, add to that the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. And now, aren't those things kind of like the same thing, wisdom and understanding? Well, it's a a synonym that we see of one another, and they are used in conjunction, put together here to emphasize the degree of which he will have this wisdom and understanding. But not just wisdom and understanding, add to that the spirit of counsel and might. He'll have the strength and the ability 
to execute all of the plans and strategies that he has of tearing down empires and replacing tyrants. Add to that the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He'll have a recognition of God's authority and a healthy fear, awe, wonder, respect for God because after all, he is God. Add to that, verse three, he will delight in obeying the Lord or as the Hebrew says, he will smell with pleasure obeying the Lord. Add to that, he will not judge by appearance or just by what he sees with his eyes, nor make a decision based on hearsay or just by what he hears with his ears. No, he makes decisions based on the reality of fact, not just by what someone's saying or or how someone looks. He sees through the facade. He sees through the sham. And the sad part is he sees through the paper mache constructions that we bring when we come to church. Oh, man, Jeremy, why'd you have to say that? I look so good today, you know, I got my hair looking good, got the clothes, you know, clean, washed, Febreze, whatever you do to make your clothes clean. You know, and you you come here and you, oh man, I even kneeled down. Everyone saw me, you know, I, I raised my hand, I sang, I carried my Bible today. I said, hi, I was nice, I smiled. Jesus sees through all our sham, all our paper mache constructions of faith. But faith is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not. Man, Jeremy, why do you got to talk like that? That doesn't make me feel good. <laughs> Trust me, it's harder on myself than it is for you. But Jesus will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. Add to that, he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. And boy, is that hard to find in our world today and especially in the ancient world. I mean, you got the poor, the needy, the destitute, the single mom with kids, the unemployed father, and everyone's just trying their hardest to survive. It's Christmas season, and you want to please everybody and go everywhere you can, but you're running out of cash, and you're just struggling. You're just struggling. You can't pay off the judges. You can't bribe the officials. You have little to no political voice. But the tides are changing. This shoot, this branch, this ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace, this Jesus, he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. Verse 4b says, The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. And it's not bad breath. It's not bad breath. It's the breath of his lips. The speech and judgment of his mouth, it tears down tyrants and brings evil oppressors to nothing. Add to that, he will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Righteousness will be like a belt. The right way of living will be readily visible. Everyone can see it like a big old, you know, Texas-sized belt buckle. Everyone can see that thing shining and gleaming. You walk through airport security, you're setting off alarms because that that righteousness is so bright and beaming. And it also holds 
everything up. But what is this part about the truth like an undergarment? Like underwear? That's what it says. Truth like an undergarment. That means that it will be basic to everything. Because that's who Jesus is. The truth, the whole truth. And you know how it goes, right? Nothing but the truth. Well, that's the shoot, the branch, the ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace. That's Jesus we're talking about. Jesus who comes into our world, our world that radiates like sin, like an exploded nuclear reactor spewing toxic waste into the atmosphere. Jesus comes into our world to bring transformation and restoration. And maybe you need that today. Maybe you didn't didn't know that that's what you needed today, but maybe you realize right now, I need to be transformed. Because my life is heading in a direction, in a trajectory that's hopeless. Or maybe you need restoration, restoration of a family or a relationship or just between you and God. Well, that's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus is doing here now in our lives through this church. That's why we meet to be transformed and to be restored. I remember the the savory smell of honey ham still hung in the air. But all that remained was the bone. Every slice was gone. Every last sliver of turkey picked clean off the bone. Yeah, the rolls, they were gone. Mashed potatoes, gone. Gravy, gone. Carrots, gone. Every last deviled egg was snatched. The, uh, all that remained, the white residue left over in the green serving bowl, that's all that remained of the fruit salad. Only a few green beans lay strewn about the white corningware dish. Christmas Eve dinner at Grandma's was finished. It was phenomenal, as was expected. The table was set beautifully, as was expected. Everyone was joyous, as was expected. And I was there squirming in my seat, as was expected. As was expected of a four or five-year-old eager for Christmas. The halls were decked with boughs of holly. Chestnuts were roasting on an open fire. All was calm. And all was bright. It was Christmas Eve, but it wasn't Christmas. I mean, it was, but not yet. When heaven came back in the birth of sweet eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, not in a palace of gold, but in a Bethlehem slum, everything changed. As Isaiah had said, the Spirit of the Lord did rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding too. 
so too the spirit of counsel and might, not to mention the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He certainly did delight in obeying the Lord. He didn't judge by appearances. He touched lepers. He touched the dead. He, he welcomed the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors. He didn't make decisions based on hearsay. He wasn't swayed by the political elites and the religious snobs. He, didn't, he, he gave justice to the poor and he blessed them. He made fair decisions for the exploited and he welcomed, invited them in. The earth did shake at the force of his word, especially at the moment of his all-atoning sacrifice for all sin once and for all, seismic activity it was. He wore righteousness like a belt in the way that right living was made very visible. And he wore truth like an undergarment, a truth that if we know it is a truth that sets us free. Everything changed when heaven came back. Heaven established his kingdom. It's already here, but not yet fully. Like waiting on Christmas Eve for Christmas morning to come. There's a fancy word that we use in theology to describe this phenomenon. It's inaugurated eschatology. And it simply means the kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully. Death is defeated, Jesus is overcome, but we still live in a world that radiates with sin like a nuclear reactor spewing toxic waste into the atmosphere. Unlike the people, though, of Isaiah's day, you and I live in a day and age where heaven already came back. Heaven already came back in the birth and in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom is established. It's already here, but not yet fully. But now the next section of Isaiah's words, they project forward to a day, an age, when transformation and restoration will be complete. It's already here, but not yet fully. Verses 6 through 8. In that day, the wolf... And the lamb will live together. Roommates, apparently. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat, not to snack, just to chill. The calf and the yearling, that's like a sheep or a horse, will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear, and that's plausible, right? Because bears are omnivores. They eat both meat and, and plants. Well, omnivore, no more. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow because who likes steak anyways? The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Now I dig that. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. What Isaiah speaks of is drastic change to the entire entire ecosystem. It's a metaphor of transformation and restoration. The categories in the animal kingdom of predator and prey, or when it comes to human beings, oppressor and oppressed will be no more. They will no longer exist. In that day, death itself will have lost its sting once and for all, and people will have no fear of what now is fatal but we're not there yet. 
We live in a world still that radiates with sin like an exploded nuclear reactor spewing toxic waste into the atmosphere. But we also live in a world where God causes new shoots to grow out of stumps and fruit-bearing branches out of old roots. And while we live in this tension between when heaven came back and waiting for heaven to come and stay, it sure might feel like suffering. Yet, Paul writes in Romans 8, yet what we suffer now is nothing. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Who's ever, who's ever desired that? You're like, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm tired of the same old sin hanging me up over and over and over again. We long for that as Paul speaks of. We eager and hope for that day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And I wait patiently and confidently, keeping the words of Isaiah chapter 11 close to my heart, verses 9 and 10, that nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's speaking of God's reign and rule over the entire universe or possibility of universes. His universal rule, his multiple universe rule over everything. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. We still live in a world saturated in sin. We still worship in a church that is saturated and sin because I'm here and you're here too. But we are not without hope. We are not without hope. In fact, we have a hope that is beyond compare. We have a hope that spurs us on when we feel like giving up. Because the one who is wise and without equal the one who is hope to the hopeless, the one who is altruistic and accessible, the one who is trustworthy and true, the one who is almighty and absolute, the one who is sinless and strong, the one who is active and alive, 
the one who is victorious and born of a virgin, the one who is irreplaceable and incorruptible, the one who is omniscient and omnipotent, the one who is righteously ruling, resurrector from the dead, he is the one and only ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace. And maybe you need that in your life today. Maybe you need that ideal king who comes to establish a kingdom of peace right inside of your heart today. Well, that's what Jesus has come to do. We thought he would come with a crown of gold, cashmere robe, and a string of pearls. We thought he'd clench with an iron fist and rain like fire on the politics. Get rid of this, get rid of that, dethrone this person, dethrone that person, but without a sword, no armored guard. He was calm and born in mother's arms. But now the government rests upon the shoulders of this baby son. The ideal king who establishes a kingdom of peace He has dealt sin and death a destructive blow. And all the radiating effects of sin and death could not handle the destructive blow that it was dealt when heaven came back. And as we await for the day, for when heaven comes to stay, may we learn to live for heaven now. May we learn to live for heaven right now. It was about a month ago that uh, my old roommate had a heaven on earth moment, a moment in his life that he had been just dreaming of forever. The first bike ride with his son. I thought about that. I thought, man, like, what would that be for me? That heaven on earth moment with Zeke? Well, it wouldn't really be a, a bike ride, but I think it would be like the first paddle out, you know, the first surf sesh baby Zeke. That would be like heaven on earth. For mom, not so much. Probably like hell on earth, actually, you know. She'd probably have him in a full suit, booties, hood, gloves, looking like some kook with a, you know, a a life vest and floaties and an inner tube. No offense, mom. But, uh, It probably sounds really terrible, but I've been prepping for this day since his very first bath. His very first bath in the NICU, it it was, I mean, look at him right there. He's doing the like little fist clench thing. He's doing the listen, Linda, listen, Linda, hand pose. But I'm not even kidding that the tub was like this big. And we're, you know, giving him a bath in. And then he he outgrew that and he outgrew the NICU and then he outgrew the double wide kitchen sink in our house. And now he's in the bath, the big bath, you know, splishing and splashing like some chubby seal. And uh, yeah, so cute, right? Oh, the kid's cute too, you know. But one thing that I've always always done whenever I give him a bath and don't call CPS on me, please don't, don't judge me, whatever you can, but don't call CPS. 
is I pour water on his face. I splash water on his face. Now I'm not waterboarding my baby. Don't, don't, leave, don't leave church thinking, oh yeah, Jeremy, oh, he waterboards the baby, you know? No, I'm just getting him prepped for Mavericks. I'm getting him prepped for SuperTube. I'm getting him prepped for North Shore, Bonsai, Pipeline, Sunset, man, J-Bay, all those places. But I realize if he's gonna paddle out someday, if he's gonna paddle out someday, it starts with baby steps. It starts with bath time today. Bath time today. And in the same way, if you and I are going to experience when heaven comes to stay, it starts with baby steps today. It starts with how we live our lives here and now for heaven, how we talk, how we respond, how we walk, how we behave, how we, how we, we plan and dream and hope and how we order our lives because heaven came back and one day it's coming to stay. And how I live in confident, patient hope, it makes all, all the difference. Would you pray with me? God, we wanna live for heaven now. Lord, we wanna live like we will in the fearless light of glory, where the darkness, where the darkness cannot find us and your face is all we see. Lord, we want to live like people without sickness in their body. Like no prison walls can hold us. We want to live like we are free. Because we know you love us. We know you found us. We know you saved us. And we know that your grace will never fail us. And while we're waiting... God, we are not waiting because we know that heaven lives in me. You have planted your seeds, your Holy Spirit inside of us who call ourselves followers of you. Help us to be awakened to that, to realize that we, we have all the power in the world to do all the things that you have called us to do. Jesus, I pray if someone in here today needs that transformation and needs that restoration, they would open up their hearts and pray, Jesus, come in. I haven't been letting you in for so long and I know that today is the day, God. Come in, break the chains, do your work, sweep up the cobwebs, shine your light to the darkest corners and alcoves of my heart. Change me, restore me, transform me come into my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, for my shame, for my guilt, for my wrongdoing. Come into my life and be my king because you are victorious. You rose from the grave. I want to follow you all the days of my life. So help us to live, Lord, for heaven now. It's in your name we